0: a college professor turned globe-trotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show.
1: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 79th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is Confident Money. I'm joined by Nika Kaburi. She is the author of Money Off the Table Decision Science and the Secret to Smarter Investing. The publisher is Houndstooth Press. Nika teaches decision science at the University of Washington and is the founder and owner of Kaburi Consulting LLC, where she uses decision science to help businesses grow. Welcome to the show, Nika.
0: Thanks for having me, Dan.
1: Looking forward to it. I have lots of questions for you. Uh, Do you want to give us a brief overview of the book?
0: Yes. It's um, sort of uh, secrets to making the right decisions when you are investing as a personal investor. That comes straight from research in um, the decision sciences or the social sciences and behavioral economics of decision making.
1: Okay. And I've always been intrigued by behavioral economics. I've been uh, someone who's advocated for the role of emotions or at least acknowledging the role of emotions In people's decision-making for the longest time. So my first basic question, you know, this certainly bubbled up thanks to Daniel Kahneman and many others, but it seems to me to have taken an amazingly long period of time because the fact that we are irrational beings and and emotions matter to us, uh, shouldn't that have always been central to the discourse on decision-making and economics? Why why do we have to wait so long to get to behavioral economics?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a Excuse me. <clears throat> that's a really interesting question. Actually, I had a student ask me that exact question um last quarter when I was teaching this course because I always start the course by explaining, you know the the economic model of rational decision making and how that works, and then kind of breaking it down to to explain how that's never the case. and And the student asked me, "Well, why are you starting there? It's not even relevant. Um, it's I, I really honestly don't know. i I sometimes think that um, the field of economics, um, like most fields that involve complex like analytics, like to simplify things because it's easier to work with. As as you know, in in terms of modeling or in terms of predicting, um, it's easier to kind of condense and simplify human behavior so that you can you can try to play with it and explore it. Um, but also, there's there is this kind of assumption that. I think we do this in our everyday lives too where um we know we're not making rational decisions we know in you know theory that other people aren't making rational decisions but when we try to understand decision making we automatically default to a rational model like you know why are we exiting Afghanistan the way they, we are like it's why did things happen there the way it ha- they have as an example um we like to come up with rational explanations because our brains just kind of go there, when in reality, I'm sure a lot of what happened was not rational either. So I think it's part just is simple economic modeling, and part that's just the way that we um, we try to find explanations and things by looking for connections, and then that analytical system, you know, system two thinking kind of steps in, and we we are really rational about it.
1: Sure. Well, I say yeah. that in part because if you go back to Adam Smith, not only did he do his work in economics, but he was interested in moral philosophy. And so way back in the day, <laughs> there right. was someone who very much recognized that emotions were going to be central to this. And then one of my favorite quotes has always been from J.P. Morgan, who said, a man, and we should update it to a man and a woman. A man makes a decision for two reasons, the good reason and the real reason. And of course, the, <laughs> right. the real reason tends to be pretty emotionally laden at times, so when you do your work for investors uh, and maybe it's also businesses at times, um, what do you see as as you know? Where do you start with people? What what kind of uh, ground rule problems do you see that you have to try to uh, clean up or, or recast their their thinking on investing?
0: Yeah, so I really primarily work with businesses and helping them uh, make the right decisions. Um, Tony Sablon, my co-author, is the wealth advisor, investment planner who works with investors. But I think we both, and we've had many conversations about this start in the same place, which is trying to help people identify their end game, which is you know surprisingly not as clear for a lot of people as one might expect. Um, you might think that if someone's coming to somebody like me, a consultant to um, enlist their our help, that they have a very clear idea of what they want. And where they want to end up and what they want their last few moves to be. Um, they they might, but they're not really connecting it to um the the needs that they immediately have. So I often have these really lo- much longer conversations than expected about where do you want to end up with this? What are you gonna do with this? Um, this insights that I'm sharing with you, what where, where do you want to go with with the, the the consulting work that I do with you? And Um, That, you know, I always start with the, at the end because it's not as clear as, as a lot of people might think. And then you just sort of work backwards. Okay. To get there, what do you need to do? Um, What kind of decisions do you need to make in order to make sure that's your, that, you know, what you want those last few decisions to be will, you know, have a great, the greatest chance of happening.
1: Well, I have to confess here, my father ended up doing the same intervention for me because about five years after I started my company, I said, so what do you think you're going to need to retire on? And I just threw out a number and he said, well, let's do the math. Let's assume you retire at such age, you live to this age. Uh, That doesn't actually leave you a whole lot (laughs) Um, for a very nice lifestyle if you start figuring out your your actual costs. Is it that it's the bandwidth and they're so busy that they haven't looked at the in-game that they... It, it puts extra burdens or requirements on them, that simply the discipline, the uh, financial literacy is maybe a little bit lacking or overshadowed by other things they're dealing with. What I mean, I'm not trying to take away your job by any means, but I'm wondering what it is that you think is setting up this predicament for, for your clients.
0: Right. Well, I think to, to do it well, you have to be able to predict pretty well. Like you have to be able to predict what your situation could possibly be in retirement, what the world might look like, um, You know what other people in your life might be doing at that time when you're about to retire. And predicting is so hard and it's so uncomfortable. We're terrible at forecasting. We're terrible at using um, probability or the laws of probability to assess likelihoods of various things happening in the future and assessing risk properly. It's just hard. And if you haven't really taken statistics not just one statistics class in college but if you don't really understand it it's really hard to employ it in your everyday life so that you can do that kind of predictive analysis and come up with like three potential scenarios or you know here's here's the kind of situation that I think is reasonable for me to be in and um and I think that's really it we kind of just go with our guts whenever things get a little bit when they require more work when they require a lot when they involve a lot of uncertainty as the future does um, so they just we just kind of revert to more myopic thinking or more short term thinking because it's easier to grasp and understand.
1: OK. And and speaking of uncertainty and forecasting, um, you know, I don't think I'm the only person who's watched the big short movie right. um, or knows that um, only a few people. And it seemed to me that to uh, tilt more toward women who were more prescient about the problem we we're about to start, you know, step into in the Great Recession why is it that so few people on, on Wall Street and so forth seem to have been very good at modeling that one, for instance?
0: Why um, why were some good at modeling it?
1: No, well so so bad. They they, bad, they, yeah. they, yeah, they missed it. Yeah. Most of them it seemed to be.
0: Well, I think well, I think I, I like well, first of all, the ones that were good at modeling it were were um very much not neglecting probability, very much objective and analyzing it as a problem. I think there was probably a lot from the movie, from what I understand of what went on. There's probably a lot of confirmation bias going on, which is that yeah. you know yeah. people just sort of wanted to believe that they were, you know, they were riding this this great you know wave into wealth and things were going to be great. And and it's really um, unsettling to see evidence that contradicts what you already believe, especially when your belief is kind of feels good. You know, things are going great.
1: Sure. Well, I mean, you can lean in or you can lean back and try to get perspective. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not uh, the expert that you are, but any stretch of the imagination. But it doesn't take a lot of history reading to see that uh, about every, what, six to 10 years, uh, no more than that, uh, you know, we, we encounter the next pretty major dip typically. Yeah. Um, yeah. So,
0: I mean, yeah, I think the thing about bias is that we don't know we're doing it and we aren't aware. And- <laughs> yep. And we could study it. We could, you know, be really great students of behavioral economics and understand how all of these things work. But we're also human, and so we're just susceptible naturally. I'm I'm susceptible to confirmation bias. I do it all the time. Um, I'm better at catching it, but it doesn't mean that I'm better at preventing it. So, you know, it's true of any aspect of life
1: sure well i think i think we're all human here so um That's let's help. speak yeah speaking of human i've always loved this quote from uh, Kierkegaard, the danish philosopher said mm-hmm. out of the twisted timber of humanity no straight thing was ever made mm-hmm. i know one of the things that financial advisors have particularly tried to do since the great recession is to get a little bit better sense of their investors and the term most often used is you know risk tolerance or risk aversion it could be risk savvy But I'm curious, in those tests, what I've read, maybe I'm wrong, that uh, they're trying to apply psychological models a bit more, including the big five factor. That's five personality traits, sometimes known as ocean, Mm -hmm. it refers to openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism, which sometimes gets restated as emotional stability. Mm -hmm. Have you used those tools at all? Have you found them at all useful? If you have, Uh, what's your perspective on that?
0: Yeah, I don't tend to use tools like that. Um I feel like well first of all there doesn't seem to be a need in the business consulting that I do. Um Okay,
1: fair enough. It's
0: not really relevant there. In the personal coaching that I do, I find that I I try to avoid labels to be quite honest. I try to avoid um I mean, for instance, I'm really not a fan of personality tests. I'm not a fan of identifying um putting people into buckets based on preferences or or personality, you know, tendencies. Um because for a couple of reasons, people are dynamic and their their attributes, their personality, especially when they self-report them, um can vary from day to day, week to week depending on situation. So it's kind of hard to get an accurate kind of read and Um, and also people are notoriously poor at self-assessment. So when you ask someone how risk averse are you, um, a lot of times their answer doesn't really align with objective data. Like you might not, you might, they might say, I'm not risk, I mean, I'm not risk averse at all. I'm ready to go for it. But if you look at their everyday lives, a lot of the time their behavior doesn't, doesn't really reflect that. Um, and there's a lot of research on how people are not great at assessing themselves or understanding who they are. So um, yeah, just people being complex, not wanting to you know put them in a bucket and then let that that label kind of then shape my perception of them, then bias my perception of them. I don't generally find that useful, but that's just okay. my no. line of work. Yeah,
1: sure. No, that's fair enough. I certainly agree with you utterly on self-reporting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that's uh, highly dubious. Um, you know, if if someone was to use such a test and begin to include others and get a little bit more of a 360 view perhaps. Um, So going back to, to the businesses, how about the situations where there's co-owners for instance, or a small cohort, or it's a family business. uh, And now you've got not one person, but uh, several, and you have to navigate, I guess I'll have to say personalities in part, or, or patterns of behavior. How does that add complexity and how do you handle that in your line of work?
0: Yeah, so it's it's interesting because I'm always trying to protect the conversations I have um from the extremes of on the one hand, you know, groupthink where the you know, everyone is on the same page and aligning way too quickly and way too easily without much reflection or thought. Um and then on the other extreme, it's just, you know, conflict, where everyone's disagreeing with each other. And I've never really worked with a client that has sat on, you know, that those either of those extremes, but they are somewhere in between. There's, you know, th- they all have a spot. Um, And when when I see there's a lot of agreement and a lot of you know consensus without a lot of thought, then my job is really to ask, you know, okay, well, why do you each independently think this this is the way to go? I'm, I actually require everyone to independently <laughs> you know, explain their point of view in a in their own words, so that they so they can own it, right? Um, it's it's kind of, uh, it's, it's tricky. And on the other hand, if there's a lot of um, conflict, then it, of course, offer, uh, requires a totally different skill set to moderate that kind of conflict. You have to look for areas or points in which people are actually aligned and look for that agreement and then work from there to smooth out the differences and, and look for more of, a, of alignment there. Um, I think that working for so many years as a researcher and having to moderate like focus group interviews or conversations among people that, um, where there is a lot of tendency for, um, group think and consensus without real thought and some, <laughs> in some interesting instances, you know, fl- just blatant argument in the middle of a focus group interview. Um, I think those skills have come in really handy as I consult with my clients.
1: Well, that, that sort of negates my next question because I was going to ask you as you've been in this field, you know, if you felt like certain uh, skills or certain vantage points have really uh, honed themselves over time. So you, it does sound like you came in with an advantage, but nevertheless, maybe there's been some evolution in your thinking how you approach these situations.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, uh, you know, when when I when I think about how my thinking has evolved or the way that my work has maybe evolved me as a person. Um, so much of my work is involved in it involves doing statistical analysis, working with numbers, working with statistics, trying to predict, um, you know, likelihoods of things, trying to minimize risk. I mean, I really am in the business of, mis- of risk minimization. That's kind of what I try to do, um, but. I think I've found that that probabilistic thinking, like thinking in terms of probabilities, when I've, I've applied it over the years more and more and more to my everyday life, it has really been beneficial. And what I mean by probabilistic thinking is, um, you know, if I make a decision like should I get a COVID vaccine, um, it's it's much I'm much more likely to think in terms of, okay, what are the likelihoods of, you know, bad things happening if I do or bad things happening if I don't, good things happening if I do, good things happening if I don't, um, rather than thinking in absolutes. Like it's, it's you know, 100% a bad idea, 100% a good idea. Um, it forces me to look in the, the gray of things, not just when I'm you know, thinking about health issues, but also like, should I have pizza for dinner? Should I have salad for dinner? Um, should I, you know, I don't know. Take my friend to the airport? Should I not take my friend to the airport? You know, um, I. When you apply likelihoods or thinking about things in terms of likelihoods and assessing probabilities, somehow you end up making decisions that are, yeah, you are more confident about.
1: Okay. At um, least one more question before we get into some very specific chapters of the book. Um, you noted at one point that Eastern European investors tend to be highly risk averse. I've, I've traveled in that region, given speeches in that region. One thing someone said to me once is, you know, if you smile a lot, we assume you're a fool mm-hmm. because only a fool would fail to realize that the situation is tenuous and there's lots of difficulties involved. Have you, and I don't want to go back to the conversation around the big five personalities exactly, but as you look by region or by age or even by gender, are there at least some guidelines you begin to keep in mind. It sounds like, at least in terms of region, you do see differences between Americans and Eastern European investors, for instance.
0: Yes, yes, um, and also not just investors, but CEOs. You know, the okay. the way that they make decisions is very different um, in different cultures, different countries. Like in the United States, we're much more decisive and it's the, you know, the boss makes the choice. He makes it very quickly, but he's allowed to pivot. Whereas in other countries, Japan being an example, um, it's a consensus. Decisions are made by the group and there's a lot of deliberation that goes on before the decision is made. But once the decision is made, there isn't a lot of pivoting. There's no, you know, we've all agreed, this is the plan, let's stick to it. Um, so there are a lot of differences there. So the the rule that I follow is make no assumptions. I mean, if you aren't considering either cultural or subcultural influences on the decision making of any person or group, then you may be missing something. And even in companies and organizations, I really try to pay attention to the culture of the companies that I help. You know, the the, the way they communicate with each other, the values they have, the way they like to work. Um, how responsive they expect me to be. All these little cues kind of tell me what their subcultures are like and how they make decisions. It really all does make a difference. It's not just country by country. Yeah. Sure. Um,
1: Well, i had once done a study where it was just a very limited sample and I was looking, it was all investors, uh, fairly wealthy between their fifties and eighties. And uh, I think maybe because women didn't historically maybe get as involved in the Personal investing. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was definitely more anxiety uh, in the women. It was it was more than twice as much than the men in these interviews. But again, a very very small sample. So I want to move specifically to the book. We've got about ten minutes left, and you have chapters that look at investors and are given different labels or titles. And there's five of these chapters, and I wanted to touch on as many of them as we can get around to just to make sure that you get a chance to maybe offer a a key seminal insight per chapter. So one is called the more is better investor. What's that about?
0: Yeah. Um, I think, you know, too often when we invest, we're looking to amass as much wealth as possible. Um, and we think that if we have, not all of us do this, a lot of us actually squander a little bit more, but we think that if we have, um, you know, a huge pool of money at the end of our of our work, um, you know, our career, and we're ready to retire. Then we've kind of won. We've got all this this money to do whatever we want with. When in reality, you know, money is really not meaningful without a um, kind of a, a healthy way of to spend it. It's really a tool to get other things, um, and. I think when we try to maximize returns or invest only to get more money, more money, more money, and we don't translate what that money means to us, if we don't think about, okay, I'm I'm actually investing because I want my kids, my children, to not have to retire at seventy like I did. I want them to retire much younger because I've left them um, quite a bit of a nest egg, or I'm really investing because. You know, if I were to pass away at an early age, I really want my wife to be set up and comfortable. Um, when you translate it into actual things that matter, you're more likely to be careful with your investments. You're more likely to make strategic decisions with your investments. Um, when you think about just more money, more money, more money, it it it's a completely different mindset and you're more likely to make bad decisions.
1: Well, the next time you have that kind of investor, there's a novel you might want to give them to read. It's called McTeague. Okay. Uh, and it's about a dentist and his wife becomes a absolute skinflint and won't spend any of their money, mm-hmm. even as it's a mass thing. And I believe if I remember right, it's many years since I read it. He ends up killing her because he wants access oh, to the my. money. Um, but, uh, anyway, it's, it's certainly a dramatic novel and, uh, maybe that kind of investor would find it interesting. You can just right. slip it, slip it under their door, <laughs> you know, in the middle, in the middle of the night, just, it just showed up somehow. Right. Uh, I, another one is the hottest trends investor. Tell us about that.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah. So there's a lot of FOMO going on in investing. Um, it's a lot of fear of missing out. Um, I, I think, and this is really relevant with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, because not because you know they're bad investments for everyone at all times but because people invest in these risky assets simply because there there's a majority of other people doing it so there's this kind of a kind of a bandwagon um, effect going on where if if everyone else is doing it if it's a trend um if you know the majority are behind it there's there's probably a reason. And it's probably a good reason. And the decision is probably a good decision. um, When in reality, the majority doing something has nothing to do with whether it's a good decision at all or for you specifically. And I like to use fashion as an example, um, a corollary example. Um, And skinny jeans are sort of my my um, pet peeve because when they were fashionable, you know, several years back, everyone started wearing them even when they weren't flattering. And, you know, rather than choosing an option that made you look better, which is the whole point of fashion, a lot of people were choosing to wear these jeans because everyone else was wearing these jeans. Um, And, you know, trends can often lead you down the wrong path. It's true in investing as well. You do things Because everyone else is doing them and that makes you feel safe. Sure, it makes you feel secure because you're in it with everyone else, but that doesn't make you actually secure. It's just a feeling.
1: Okay. So, yeah, there are general trends, but they also give me trends among the experts. So, another category was what the experts would do, investor.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. There are a lot of investors who follow like Warren Buffett or, you know, they have their favorite blogger or, and they just, you know, they, they believe that if they do whatever this other person advises they'll be okay and there's reason to think that because you know Warren Buffett's a very rich man and why wouldn't you want to follow in the footsteps of someone who has the kind of money that you might want to have someday but the truth of the matter is he he's a very different person and his you know his end game might be different and that's why it's really important to start at the end and attach your money to things that that you actually want rather than just seeing it as money You know, you have to be—you have to customize your investment portfolio to your specific needs. And experts don't know you personally; Uh, they don't know who you are and what your needs are, so they're not advising you specifically. Um, I'd be very wary in listening to them. And not only that, but—and I don't think we really made a big point of it in the book, but I will make a big point of it here. Um, It's really easy to call yourself an expert. I mean it go on linkedin and do a google search and there are millions of i mean i'm exaggerating but there are thousands of experts and gurus and by definition an expert is really just the cream of the crop right somebody who has real you know unique specialized expertise in something um, so i would be very wary of just listening to someone because they call themselves an expert
1: well mark twain once quipped that an expert is someone from out of town
0: yeah Exactly. Yeah, so if that's that all it that's all it takes, that, that allows quite right. a few of us
1: to become an expert, at least uh, oh. in some jurisdictions.
0: And Naomi Judd once said, what was it? An expert is just someone with slides.
1: Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Um, so we got a couple more here. One was the, the do something investor.
0: Yeah. So this goes back to the leaning in and uh that we talked about um in another conversation. So the do something investor feels like if they're doing something they're okay. Um they're they're you know especially if they feel like they're I don't know not not investing at all and suddenly freaking out because their friends are investing and and they feel like they have to do something. Um that's one scenario, but also a lot of people feel like as long as they've got a 401k, as long as they're doing something or maybe they have a second house, um, it's enough. It's good. I'm doing something, and something is better than nothing. And it's actually quite a lot. When in reality, it kind of sets you up for potential failure because doing something is not the same as doing the right thing. Um, but again, because investing is scary, it's fraught with uncertainty. You can't predict the future. You don't know if you're really going to make the right choice. People like to default to just you know, set it and forget it. Just do something minimal, and and just tell myself I. I've done it and then forget about it, um, but it's kind of a false sense of security because you could you could be making the wrong choices. Not not everything is the right choice. Investing is not in itself the answer. You have to invest correctly.
1: Okay, and then what is the difference between a do something investor and what is always worked investor?
0: So the what has always worked investor is okay. So maybe they've done the thinking, they've done the research, they've they've done the work to come up with their their strategy or a portfolio. And they're really a truly, um, you know, set it and forget it investor in that they, this is where confirmation bias is really important. They just sort of have their ideas about what works and they don't really quite revisit not only their thinking, but they don't revisit the available options that are out there. Um, A lot of tools that are available for investors um, today were not available years ago. A lot of them have regulations that didn't exist years ago. Um, so people who years ago were told, for instance, that investing in life insurance as a, you know, using life insurance as an investment vehicle is absolutely the bad idea may not be um, aware of ways in which these vehicles have changed or these tools have changed that might actually suit people of a certain income bracket. Um, and you miss out on those things if you just set it and forget it, if you if you don't revisit your thinking, if you don't challenge your old assumptions, and if you don't constantly, or at least moderately constantly, research what's what's available, because it changes.
1: Okay. So one last question just to bring us to the contemporary area. It seems to me that, and I'm an amateur in these things, but Jerome Powell has a, a difficult because obviously the Federal Reserve Board is, you know following his predecessors has intervened massively in the markets in recent years. Uh you know, we're on to a decade of this at this point and yet to back off very much since jitters through Wall Street. How in the world is someone in that role supposed to uh navigate this? What what's the future look like to you?
0: Um it looks about as uncertain as it usually does. I think gosh, you know, I'm not one to to instill a lot of hope, I think. Um, but again, maybe I am because uncertainty is just part and parcel of investing. It's part of life. And I think we often assume we have more certainty about our situations than we actually do, or that we have more control than we actually do. So if you can prepare for you know, all possible scenarios to the best of your ability, if you can predict, you know the worst, the best scenarios, and try to invest offensively and defensively to you know earn more money and also protect the money you've earned. Then you'd be better off no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the Federal Reserve is doing. Um, just um, you know, assume that uncertainty is a, it's just a part of life.
1: I mean, it's it is a given. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I want to thank you, Nico, so much for joining me today. Uh, this has been episode number seventy nine. Confident Money my guest Nika Kaburi along with Tony Sablinch they are both the co-authors of Money Off the Table Decision Science and the Secret to Smarter Investing If you enjoyed today's show please give it a rating or review on iTunes you can check out other episodes by going to my company's website at the obligatory 3ws and sensorylogic.com or go to the New Books Network type in Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight and the other programming will pop up Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, I couldn't resist one from Benjamin Franklin, who said, an investment in knowledge pays the best interest. Until next time, be kind and stay safe.